We'll be reading from 2 Peter. 2 Peter, beginning in verse 1. 2 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 11. I'm reading the NIV. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, Mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction you give. Thank you for the opportunity to hear it to let it sink into our hearts, to change our lives, to help us become a new creature through the renewing of our minds. We praise you, Lord. Ask your, your presence here today. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a real staple of our storytelling uh, to, to have a character who is given kind of an impossible task. Uh, this is a, a common trope in storytelling that goes back centuries, if not maybe even millennia. I mean, you find this in very old stories. You think about this in some of our common fairy tales, uh, the story of Cinderella, and Cinderella being given this relatively impossible task by her wicked stepmother, right? And all of these individual chores maybe aren't so much, but she just overloads her with so many chores that there's no possible way that Cinderella could could finish these chores in the time allotment that she's been given. You think of uh, Hercules. Hercules labors. You remember that old, old myth of Hercules and, and things like, like to clean out the Aegean stables that were said to have not been cleaned out for decades and were filled with a thousand horses uh, and were uh, very uh, robust in their eating and then, you know, <laughs> you know what happens when horses eat uh, this story, just this impossible task. 
even the, the Knights of Me, which uh, some of you maybe won't be familiar with, but the Knights of Me, that even when they were brought a shrubbery, then gave a new task to say, you must cut down the mightiest tree in the forest with a herring, right? It's impossible. One of my favorites, though, is Rumpelstiltskin. The story of Rumpelstiltskin, who, who because uh, uh, a maiden whose father kind of shot his mouth off and said that she could spin straw into gold, the king said, oh, fine, then do it. In fact, do it or you'll be executed. This impossible task. And then this somewhat malicious little imp comes in and says, well, I can spin straw into gold for you. You know, you just give me a piece of that jewelry. And then the king said, well, that was great. Do it again. Here's more straw. Spin it into more gold. And the imp came back and said, well, now I see you gave me your necklace. Now I see you've got a really nice ring. Give me that ring and I'll spin the straw into gold for you. He spun the straw into gold. Finally, the king said, here's just a whole room full of straw. Spin this into gold and I'll marry you. Don't and I'll execute you. And this maiden, not knowing what to do, not having any more jewelry or anything else to give, the imp came back, you remember, and said, give me your firstborn and I'll spin this into gold for you. This impossible task that she couldn't possibly complete. And then later on, of course, in the story, when realizing she was going to have to give up her firstborn and not wanting to do that, and this imp said, I'll tell you what, if you can guess my name by the time three days is up, I won't make you give me your firstborn. And just another impossible task. There's no way for her, for her to complete it. Until she did, of course, and said, your name is Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> but we love these stories, and I think the reason we love these stories is that a lot of us are really familiar with this sort of idea, aren't we? I mean, haven't you been given a task that just felt impossible to you? You face just insurmountable odds, something given to you that you think, how am I ever going to do this? It's not possible. I can't, I'm stuck between a proverbial rock and a hard place, I don't know what I'm going to do. I think we've all been there and we even see stories in our Bible that are somewhat like that. I want to ask you to turn this morning to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11. As we continue to study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and this morning we'll be in Mark and we're nearing the final stages of this story here. We've We've been saying for some weeks that, that Jesus has been explaining to His disciples that He is going to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the, the seat of power in Israel. And while He spent a great deal of His public ministry kind of away from this power center, further up north, and, and He certainly has interactions with the rulers of Israel, but they've been somewhat minimized. But there are these rulers that are extremely jealous they're extremely upset about what jesus has been teaching and now he's going into kind of the hotbed of where they all are and here he comes and in mark chapter 11 in verse 1 it says as they approached jerusalem and they came to bethphage and bethany 
at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. This is uh, prepping, of course, an event that we refer to as the triumphal entrance. And we've talked about this before. We oftentimes look at this on Palm Sunday, right? We just did again this last Palm Sunday. We're somewhat familiar with this story. We're not unfamiliar with this element of the story, but we might focus on this a little bit less. And I want to spend more time maybe this morning focusing on just this element. We're going to circle back to this. This is one of those, in my mind, one of those really subtle miracles that Jesus performs. You know, there are miracles that are very obvious. And, very, and we, we've pointed out before, it's so wonderful the way Jesus so rarely makes a big show of, you know, he doesn't wave his arms and there's no flash of light and, and pow. You know, they're all somewhat understated, just the manner in which he performs them. But this one is so, if we're not paying attention, we might not even recognize this as a miracle. But just think of this task that he's asked a couple of his disciples to undertake. Go into a village you're going to see a colt tied there. A colt that's never been ridden before. And when you find it, untie it and bring it back to me. There are all sorts of things wrong with this request, right? Think about a colt that's never been ridden. I don't know how many of you have had opportunity to, to interact with horses or or donkeys, or you know, that sort of an animal. When they're young, and when they've never been ridden, you ever just try to climb on their back? Or have you ever watched somebody try to? I mean, I want no part of that. Right? But I've seen it done. You ever seen somebody try to get on a horse for the first time, or a donkey for the first time, and to train them to have a, a person on their back? So he says... Go find this colt. You know, we're, we're told in these texts that, that, that the colt has never been ridden. Right there. That's a problem. But then he also tells them seemingly to commit theft, doesn't he? He says, go ahead and untie. Now, he makes it clear, I'm borrowing the colt. If anybody asks you, you can tell them, we'll return it. It'll come back. But he's asked these disciples to go and to look for a colt. Now, put yourself in the shoes of one or the other of those disciples. Take your pick. You pick one or the other. And you've been asked to just go walk into the next city and look for this animal. I mean, what are you thinking? Honestly, it, it seems real easy to us. Simple maybe sometimes to us to think, well, they've seen so many signs and you're not wrong, but still, I wonder as if they were headed down the road, if there was a little bit of hand wringing going on. Like, what? So we're about to do this? Like, first we have to find the thing. I mean, what if we get to the village and there's no colt? What if we don't see it? 
then I guess we walk back and tell them we couldn't find it? Or, I mean, how is this going to work? And then we're just going to untie it and walk away with it? There are so many things that just seem really wrong about this. But verse 4 says they went. And sure enough, they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? (laughs) This is brilliant. Can't you just see this scene? Now, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Just your own shoes. And you're sitting at your dining room table. I was going to say you're sitting on your front porch, but the weather has gotten such that you're probably not doing much of that anymore, right, for a few months. But maybe sitting at a dining room table with a a cup of coffee, and you watch somebody walk up the street and come into your driveway and get into your car. How do you feel about that? Don't you have some questions? Like, hey, what are you doing with that car? In this case, they didn't have cars. So they asked and said, what are you doing with the cold? I love this scene. They're all out there in front of It seems like maybe they're standing right there. And here come two guys untying their animal. Of course they asked. Excuse me. What are you doing? And I love that these disciples, very simply in verse 6, answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. (laughs) I'll tell you what. This is why this is a miracle, see. Because just naturally, if that were me sitting on my porch or sitting in my window, and I watched somebody come and get into my car, and I went up to them and said, hey, time out, what are you doing with that car? Even if they said, someone really important needs it, I would say, wait, I have a bunch more questions. Wouldn't you? I mean, I'd be very cynical if you came and said, we've got a a visiting dignitary or maybe a police emergency. The chief of police personally needs your car. I think my first response would be, I don't believe you. That doesn't sound right. And I don't think the people of this age were all that different from us. You know, it's a different time, and sometimes we can look at at cultural norms and, and how they're different. But in this case, I'm not sure people naturally would have just said, Oh, you need my cold? Okay. And yet what they say is, Oh, you need my cold? Okay. Do you see the miracle happening here? Do you see what Jesus has just done in order to accomplish this thing? And imagine 
the disciples. I, I mean, I don't know what the level of their faith and trust was on this particular day in this particular act as they committed this activity. But I would have been nervous just walking to some place and finding an animal and untying it and walking away with it and just waiting as I said, well, the Lord has need of it. And just imagine as the people gathered there said, oh, okay. What a relief, right? What a, what a, that just happened. I can't believe that thing just happened. And so, verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus. And they threw their cloaks over it. And he sat on it. And again, this is just another part of this miracle. He sat on this young colt that had never been ridden before. That doesn't happen. If you haven't had opportunity to spend time around animals like this, just take my word for this. That doesn't happen. Even putting their cloaks over the back of this colt might have spooked a normal animal, you know. But they do this, and then Jesus climbs on top of this colt. And Jesus begins to ride into Jerusalem this way. A couple of the other Gospels, Matthew most notably, tells us that this, this all happened in order to fulfill a very specific prophecy that the Messiah would come to Israel in peace, riding on the back of a, a colt, on the back of a donkey, this, this real symbol of peace, you know, where a, a, a conquering king would ride into a city on the back of a war horse. But this beautiful prophecy that Israel's Redeemer, their Savior, their Messiah, would come to them riding on a donkey. And Matthew says, you remember that prophecy? This all happened in order that that prophecy would be fulfilled. And so it says in verse 8, that as he rode into Jerusalem, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. These palm branches. And those who went ahead... And those who shouted, I'm sorry, those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Many of you, I know, as we've looked at this before, you probably have a footnote there on the word Hosanna that points out it's a, a word that literally means save. It's this, this implication, save, save us! But it also sort of turned into a uh, just a word of praise has this dual meaning. And as Jesus comes in, people start taking their own cloaks off and, and covering the ground. You hear about rolling out the red carpet for someone. They use their own cloaks. And they cut down these branches from out in the fields. And, and, and we're told elsewhere that some of them waved them and then some of them spread them on the road just to make this amazing carpet of sorts and they're shouting Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David Hosanna in the highest heaven 
And Jesus entered Jerusalem. And he went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And we've said before that, that Jesus, during this, this period, this week that is known as the, the Passion Week, that he, he spends the evenings in Bethany, which was a little ways to the east of Jerusalem. And so he comes this triumphal entry into His kingdom, His rightful place, the throne on which He belongs is there. And you can see that there are some people who who have some recognition of that. And it's hard to know if this is true recognition where they're expressing what they actually believe is happening or whether it's sort of a hopeful thing that they're expressing what maybe they hope is happening. If you look at history, there have been a number of people who had claimed to be the Messiah before. Lots of them. Most of them had been executed for being enemies of the state. But here's another one. There's something special happening here. And there is some extra proof. All of these signs that Jesus has been performing. These miracles that were often done out of love and care for someone, but were also these signs. We've looked at some very special ones in the Gospel of John. These, the, the Greek word semeon, that means a, a sign, a pointer of something. And Jesus says, I'm telling you who I am, and now I'm going to do these things to prove to you who I am. So he certainly had a lot of extra backing that many of the prior so-called messiahs had not had. Nonetheless, given the tenor of the crowd, as they'll be at the end of this Passion Week, it does make one wonder you know, how really robustly maybe they all believed this. Still, it's a fantastic scene as Jesus rides in and people are just excited and they're caught up in this. They throw their cloaks down. They cut these branches down. They make this this beautiful carpet for Him to ride in on. And they, they just shout this expression of praise. They celebrate the fact that this King is now riding into his city. But I love that in immediate advance of that happening, this really simple thing that happens, is Jesus says, I need to ride in on a donkey. Do you suppose Jesus was familiar with the prophecy that said that the Messiah would come in on the back of a colt? I think so. (laughs) He says, so go find me the colt. I can tell you where it'll be. You'll see it. Just go and get it and untie it and bring it back to me. And again, from a very human standpoint, this to me feels like kind of an impossible task. I mean, it's not that unbelievable 
It maybe isn't like being asked to spin straw into gold. But it might as well be. And My personality is probably a little bit different than yours, but I don't really like confronting strangers, you know. I mean, this just would have felt really nerve-wracking to me. Like, you want me to do what? But the reality is that Jesus has already prepared for all of this to happen. It's all part of the plan. And I love just this simple, simple fact that Jesus wasn't attempting to play a prank on them. He wasn't waiting for them to come back empty-handed and then to laugh and say, that was hilarious. I can't believe you actually tried to go do that. He sends them with the full expectation that they will return with a colt, unhampered by the owners of said colt, because he knows full well that that way has already been prepared for them. It's already been accomplished for them. I want you to consider something. As we have been reading these stories of Jesus, the accounts given by these four Gospel writers, And there are often times when Jesus calls on people around Him to do a thing. There have been some pretty wild things. Things like to get out of a boat and come to Him on a stormy sea. Things like to take a very meager little bit of food, a few loaves and little fishes, and to use them to feed thousands of people. And he's asked for some pretty extravagant things. Things that have seemed like impossible tasks. But has Jesus, by your recollection, ever asked anyone to do anything for which he did not equip them to do? I'll give you a minute to think about it. I thought about it. I looked pretty hard. I couldn't find a single time. I don't think you will either. And I think we see this continuing story in God's Word as the Gospels wrap up. And one of the things that happened is Jesus having been put to death, having been put in the tomb, and then rising from the dead and appearing to hundreds of people, even at the same time. But he leaves his followers with some really basic instructions, but part of those instructions say, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you what you need. I will at times, at times you'll be given the very words to say that you need to say. He promises them that with this amazing task that He is leaving them, that they will be equipped. In our Scripture reading this morning in 2 Peter, Peter writes, 
Peter, one of those apostles. That God's power gives us everything that we need for living a godly life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, says that God works in us in order to will and to act according to His purpose. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21, says that God will equip you with everything necessary for doing His will. You see, God is not going to call you to do something without equipping you to do that thing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God gives no impossible tasks. (laughs) Caveat. God may give a task that might be impossible for you to do without His help and intervention. But He won't do that to you. God never gives a task. God never calls you to do a thing without equipping you to do the thing. Sometimes supernaturally. And that's a great comfort, isn't it? I know it's easy sometimes to say, I can't, I can't do that. I think we've all been there. Sometimes they're very specific things. I've shared the story with many of you when I was first called into full-time ministry. My wonderful wife, Deborah, is, is so... I've told this story multiple times. Upon hearing the call, she was ready to go. Let's go. Let's go. I'm ready. I wasn't that person. I fought it. I thought of all sorts of excuses why I couldn't do it. I realized I was behaving just like Moses, who gave God all sorts of reasons he couldn't do this impossible thing that God was calling him to do. God said, Moses, I'm going with you. I will be there with you. I will give you these signs. I will exercise my mighty arm. I will give you the very words to say. But we still sometimes say, I don't don't know, I don't think I can do that. And I just want to remind us that God will not call you to do a thing without equipping you to do the thing. And it may be a very specific kind of a calling. But sometimes they're just general things. We continue to talk about the fact that all of us, I mean, we don't have specific individual callings even. All of us are called to be ministers of the reconciliation and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But sometimes I think, I can't do that though. I'm not good at it. I'm not an extrovert. I kind of don't even like people very much. I mean, you know what? Fill in the blank, whatever your thing is. And I remind you, God will not call you to do a thing without equipping you to do it. Those can't be excuses. You're called to live a life of holiness and of godliness. Sometimes I say, "I, I can't do this, it's too hard. 
it's too hard. I can't give that thing up or I can't resist that temptation. And I remind you, God will not call you to do a thing without equipping you to do it. It's an encouragement. But it's also a challenge, isn't it? Really. Because the vast majority of our excuses... The vast majority of my excuses, the vast majority of whatever excuse you've got, melt away when you remember that God does not call His people to do something without equipping them to do the thing. He's not playing a prank on you. He's not handing you an impossible task that you'll never be able to complete. Unless maybe He is handing you an impossible task that you by yourself would never have been able to complete, but you're not going to have to do it by yourself. Trust your God. Trust in His sovereignty. Trust in His providence. Trust that if He asks you to do something really crazy, like just go to a place and look for a colt and untie it and bring it back to Him, that He'll have the details sorted out for you. Go do the thing. And I don't know what thing it is that you might be avoiding this morning, this week. What excuses you have thrown up. What either general commands that are for all of the body of Christ that we have here. Or maybe even something specific that the Holy Spirit is really working on you about. But I promise you that God will not call you to do a thing in His service without equipping you to do that thing. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Holy Word. We praise You for the fact that You have revealed Yourself to us in it. You so often reveal ourselves to us in it. Father, we are so grateful as a body that we are able to meet here freely. We recognize we have a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ that don't have that luxury this morning. We especially lift them up and pray that you encourage them. We recognize you haven't called them either without equipping them. And that you don't and will not call us to follow your will, to follow your commands without equipping us to do so. You don't lay in front of us impossible tasks that we'll never complete. They might seem impossible. And yet each and every time, you've supernaturally equipped us in order to fulfill your will. God, help us to take comfort in that. And help us also to be challenged by that wherever we are this morning. Whatever that thing is or those things, that you would help us to trust you more deeply, to have a faith in you that knows with absolute assurance that you don't ask us call us 
to follow your will without giving us the tools to do so. We praise you, God. We thank you. We love you. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.